0: Studying the book of 1 Corinthians together in a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World, just in case we ever find ourselves trying to do just that. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and get their attention, and they'll get a Bible into your hands. And then, please, if you don't own a Bible, we would like you to make uh, that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called or saved. Were you called or saved while a slave? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. And likewise, he who is called or saved while free is Christ's slave. You are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called or saved. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. We never tire of telling you thank you for your word. How powerfully you have used it to change our lives, Lord, both inside and out. How powerfully you've used it to help us to grow in our understanding of you. And Lord, the more that we understand of you and know of you, the more we fall in love with you. And you knew it would be so. And it is our glad portion to be on that path and for that to be Our life, Lord, you outdo yourself every week in our lives, and we're humbled by that, and we're grateful. And we pray that the reasons that this handful of verses is in this Bible, what they are intended to accomplish in each one of our hearts in order for us to maintain perspective, In a world that's losing perspective rapidly, we pray, Lord, that you would cause it to accomplish just that in our lives. Help us to understand your word, Lord, in a way that makes us more like your Son. We ask for that work of your Holy Spirit this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. many if not most uh, if not almost all of the christians who were saved and a part of the church in corinth became christians out of a very very pagan background the pagan background of corinth Corinth was famous in the ancient world for its sexual immorality, for its drunkenness, and for its idolatry. It was, to put it in, you know, our terms today, it was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Only what happened in Corinth didn't stay in Corinth. <laughs> uh, What happened in Corinth, that news went around the world, and they became known for their sin. And so here you have people who are becoming Christians in this very sin-filled and very, very pagan context. And because they didn't come to Christ out of a Christian background, because they didn't grow up in a nation that had a Christian heritage, they had a lot of questions about what it meant to be a Christian and what it meant to live the Christian life. They didn't have mothers and fathers who were Christians. They didn't have grandparents or uncles and aunts who were Christians. They were first-generation Christians in that context of, of Corinth. And so they've got all of these questions about what it meant to be a Christian, how to live as a Christian, how to live a life that, honored Jesus in the midst of all of the sin and the uh, spiritual darkness, the moral darkness of the city of Corinth. And so they wrote a letter to Paul and they asked him specific questions about this thing and about that thing. And Paul, from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 through to the end of the book, he proceeds to answer their questions one by one. Some examples of what they were wondering in their minds after they became Christians in the city of Corinth. They wondered, well, maybe um, since we are Christians living in this very, very sexually charged city of Corinth, maybe it's best that we give up uh, the sexual relationship altogether, even in the marriage relationship. Paul wrote back to them, as we've seen, and said, no, that that's a fail and uh, on a lot of levels and uh, no don't do that and he explained to them how god uh, is to be honored in in the sexual relationship within marriage and then they wondered whether if a husband or a wife became a christian and uh, formerly both husband and wife were unsaved and very much a part of the pagan culture around them and one becomes a christian now Does the uh, Christian partner divorce or separate from the unsaved partner simply because they're not a Christian yet? Paul wrote to them. These are questions. These are good questions. They're wondering. These were dishonest questions. They were wondering, what do we do here now with this? We've never been here before. We've never seen anybody handle this before. So what do we do? And Paul taught them that they weren't to leave their spouses for that reason, and he told them why. Now, there are a lot of wonderful things about a new Christian, things that's exciting to be around, brand-new Christians. We should never lose that, aspects of that in our life, no matter how long we walk with the Lord. But new Christians are especially filled with passion. They're filled with zeal. They're filled with excitement that they can hardly contain. Um, they are just fresh in the re- realization that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. They know God is doing a miracle in my life right now. I am not the person I once was. And then as they learn more and more from the Word of God, what God is making their lives into, they're excited for all of it to happen In their lives. And all of it is a very, very exciting time in the Christian life. But there are some dangers to being a new Christian that new Christians need to be aware of. And one of those is this tendency to come up uh, with our own ideas about what true spirituality looks like. Because sometimes those ideas can be very, very misguided. So, for instance, a person becomes a Christian while working at a secular job. And they decide, well, this is no way to honor God delivering the mail or working in the school system or... Uh, serving and in a, earning a living at one of the stores in the mall or something like this. This is no nobility to these uh, kind of things. And so they decide they really can't honor God and they can't serve God in that place and that somehow they need to become either a pastor or at least on a church staff in order to, you know, really, really be making a difference for the Lord. Or a woman becomes a Christian in the middle of raising, uh, one or more children, and, uh, she begins to think that there's really no opportunity to, to glorify God and something as mundane and, and simple, so to speak, as that. And so she gets it into her head that she has to really, she has to become a missionary. Take those kids to the other side of the world in order to make a, a difference for God. Or a young man or a young woman becomes a Christian while they're attending a secular college or a secular university, and they conclude that there's really no opportunity uh, to serve God in this environment. It's all paganism, and it's all anti-God, and it's all these things. And and uh, so they decide there's no value that this education can bring to their life at all, and so they quit the university in order to become a part of something that's really spiritual, like a Christian commune or whatever the equivalent of that would be in, uh, in today's age. And we can begin to make all of these very rash and very ill-advised decisions under our own kind of self-determined definitions of spirituality that may not be spiritual at all. And the two questions that Paul answers in these verses, we could maybe put them uh, this way, given the world that we live in now, 2,000 years later. Question number one would be, well, since I'm a new Christian, do I need to reject and do I need to forsake everything about my past history? Do I have to consider everything about my history to be unholy, all of its useless, and all of my previous friendships, all of my life experience, my racial identity, my family, do I have to jettison all of that off as something that's useless and something that I should uh, depart from and there's really uh, God's not going to use me in that, that kind of a place? And the second question that, that uh, Paul answers that we might put in this way is, well, since I'm a new Christian... Uh, do I need to quit my job because it isn't overtly Christian? I mean, we're not printing Bibles here. Or we're not developing a a Sunday school curriculum uh, here. And so it isn't overtly what I'm doing eight hours a day or more. It isn't overtly advancing the kingdom of God. I mean, after all, all I'm doing every day is selling electronics or or farming, or I'm working at a bank, or you fill in the blanks. Now concerning question number one, since I'm now a Christian, do I have to break off from every part of my former life, including uh, those things that are not sinful? And Paul uses circumcision and he uses uncircumcision to make his point. In other words, he says, if you are circumcised, When you become a Christian, and what he's saying is, if you were a Jew when you became a Christian, then don't become uncircumcised. Now, clearly he's not talking about um, a a physical thing here. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Because once you've been circumcised, I don't know how you do this uncircumcision thing. So he's using symbolism here. I understand in the Greek world and the ancient world they would endeavor to, to do that. But what he's saying is, if you're a Jew and and you were a Jew when you became a Christian, don't worry about all of that. Don't end all of the relationships with your Jewish family. Don't terminate all of your social and your relational connections with your fellow Jews. Maintain them as long as they're not a danger to your faith and your relationship with the Lord. And live your Christian life in front of them. And then he says on the other side, talking about the Gentiles, he said, if you were uncircumcised when you became a Christian, that is, you're a Gentile, and Gentiles in that day, they were uh, typically very secular or agnostic or atheist, or they would be um, believers in God, but they would be idolaters. And so, he said, if you were come from that background, uncircumcised, then don't become circumcised. Again, he's not talking supremely in a physical sense at all in all of this. He's basically saying that if you were a Gentile when you became a Christian, don't worry about that. Uh, You don't have to become a Jew. Don't terminate your relationships with all of your unsaved family and, and don't end all of your social and relational connections with your fellow Jews. Maintain them again as long as they're not a danger to your. Your Christian faith as long as they're not sinful and just go ahead and continue to live your Christian life before all of these unsaved people that have made up your life before you became a Christian and let them see the change that God has made uh, in your life. And when they see the change, tell them who made the change and why that change has occurred in your life. So he's basically saying, keep coaching. The little league baseball team. Don't quit it because you're a Christian. Stay a part of the PTA. Don't quit it just because you become a Christian. Keep volunteering at the hospital. Don't quit that just because you become a Christian. Keep on that school board. Keep going to the family reunions. Keep being a part of the family get-togethers and the Uh, neighborhood get-togethers. Don't throw away every friendship that is meaningful and substantial and significant in terms of you being able to speak into that relationship and them being able to speak into your life. Uh, You're a Christian now, but you're a safe place because of those relationships for people to ask you about Christianity that they would never feel free to ask a stranger. And if you cut off all of those relationships, then it's really going to be two steps backward and one step forward in terms of, of reaching people. I mean, who better to see the change in our lives that God brings into our lives than people who know us best? People who don't know us very well, they know a change occur. They know we're different. So he's a Christian or something, some kind of a fanatic. I've talked with him for three minutes and he didn't use the Lord's name in vain or drop some swear word. So they know pretty quick that we're what we laugh at, what we don't laugh at, how we conduct ourselves. They know, hey, these people are tapped into something different. But a stranger, they're never going to understand how great the changes that God has made in our life. But our family members and our friends, sometimes they may want to shun us get rid of us. That happens. That's a reality. But it isn't a thing where we take, and here are the people that we can, that can see most clearly the miracle that God does in a human life. And so often again, is the zeal as a new Christian we will cut ourselves off from what is potentially the most effective part of our mission field because we feel those relationships are valueless now and the only relationships that are meaningful are the relationships that I have at church. And it isn't a matter of either or. As Christians, we can have both. We don't have to choose between being rich in relationships with Christians and being rich and in meaningful relationships with people who don't know the Lord yet and endeavor for them to see Christ in our lives. And so every one of us, when we become Christians, we all uh, have a past. We have past relationships. We have past associations. We have a long history with lots and lots of people and, and, uh, uh, lots of life experience. And now we need to, of course, throw off what's sinful or what would hinder us in our our growth as a, a Christian, but to remain in those circles that allow us to maintain contact with those uh, from our past who, when they see the quality of life that we've, they've never seen in us before, the joy, the peace, the meaning that our life has now, because of giving our life to the Lord. You see the quality of, of life that we have as Christians by just simply obeying God's Word, which is what Paul talks about here. So don't try and make the big thing that impacts people, whether you're circumcised or not. That does it doesn't matter. What matters is obeying the Word of God, and then why is that significant? Well, that's significant on a lot of levels. But for these purposes, it's significant in that obeying God's word makes us a very, very different kind of person and an attractive person, not to everybody, but to someone who is looking for meaning and purpose and hope and forgiveness and love and joy in their life as well. I like the old saying that the kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom that becomes visible through the obedience of God's people. Every time we obey God's word and that kind of flies in the face of what everybody else is doing in the family or everybody else is doing around that water cooler or, or whatever the situation might be in a school or that kind of thing, every time that happens, it's like this little explosion occurs and the kingdom of God is manifest for a moment there through that obedience. And everybody realizes something just happened here that's different than we see every day in everybody else's life. And it's powerful. It's powerful. But sometimes we cut off all of those relationships immediately um, upon becoming a Christian where that difference can make the most difference uh, Of all. And then what happens? We walk with the Lord for a while and we walk and we walk and we realize wow, in my zeal and in my own uh, self imposed definitions of spirituality, I realize that I have cut myself off from the people whose salvation I am most concerned about in all of life. And then what do we do? We find ourselves then, having taken two steps back now, we find ourselves now having to regain ground to reestablish the relationship, redevelop the relationship so that we can then be an influence on in that relationship. And so sometimes there's that early time where we will cut ourselves off unbiblically from where we might be most influential. Again, when we become new Christians, so often people don't want anything to do with us. We can't control that. But we shouldn't feed in uh, into all of that. And so Paul just tells these new Christians, instead of burning all these bridges to that shouldn't get burned, he just encourages them and us, you know, just slow down, just take a deep breath, and realize you really don't need to do anything except to just live this new life in the midst of these same people that you know and that you love so they can see the difference that God will make in a human life. And again, I want to say, yes, there will be relationships that have to go out of our lives once we become a Christian because those relationships are unsafe for us spiritually. God has delivered us out of drugs or delivered us out of alcohol or a life of crime or out of a gang or whatever it might be. And there needs to be separation from that influence and from that temptation. So, yes, there are relationships that we do need to break ourselves uh, uh, away from, but so often we cut off a far larger group than that. And, yes, there are jobs that we will need uh, to quit now that we've become uh, Christians you know prostitution would be out um, Corinth I mean this was people were getting saved out of all kinds of backgrounds, selling idols you know in your idol store that 's kind of out, so you know things do change there and but that 's the exception for the Christian rather than the rule and yes uh, some Christians will need to leave a house. They will need to leave a home and a neighborhood and a city in order to get separated from old sinful influences. But again, that's the exception. It's not the rule. And the point he's making there in verse 20 is, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. And so Jewish believers shouldn't try to become Gentiles or non-Jewish. Gentile believers shouldn't try to become Jews. Again, those things don't matter, Paul says. Being a Jew or a Gentile, that doesn't matter anymore. Uh, all that matters is that we're in Christ, and all that matters is to live the Christian life where we are. You think about it, with those who uh, came to Christ from a Jewish background, they would be able to witness uh, for Jesus in terms of their life and in terms of speaking and all uh, uh effectively among their fellow Jews in a way that a Gentile might not ever be able to do. So you take a Jew who is, becomes a Christian and he decides that, all right, um, he imposes upon himself this uh, self-determined idea of spirituality and he cuts himself off from everybody that he knew in synagogue, everybody that he, all of his family, all of his everything. Now now God wants to reach his family for Christ. God wants to reach that family. God wants that family to see the power of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. But that person self-removes themselves, And so how much, how in the world, what Gentile, Could God ever, if you've ever been, (laughs) go to Brooklyn. What Gentile could reach a group of Jewish people more effectively than a Jew who's been raised in the entire environment. He knows what they think. He knows what they're going to say before they say it. He knows their life experience. He knows everything about it. He is able to begin to speak into their life. I mean, he's years ahead of any Gentile that God could try to plug into that situation. And yet so often the person wants to go ahead and cut himself off from that, again, with his own decision-making. You take a person with a pagan background or a secular Gentile background, and that kind of person would be able to witness for Jesus in that environment in a way that a Jew might not be able to. And Paul is saying that God knew what he was getting when he saved each and every one of us. He knew what family we were in. He knew what college we went to or we didn't go to. That's kind of weird, isn't it? He knew what neighborhood we live in. He knew what city we would get saved in. He knew about all of these things, all of our recreational relationships, all about our business relationships. And he doesn't want us to feel like we need to, again, set some kind of self-imposed idea of holiness or separation that causes us to just abandon them uh, wholesale under the influence of that. God will move us, tells us in verse 20, I mean, a little bit later in the passage. He, God will move us if he wants to. He'll move us to another state, or he He can move us um, from... One job to another job. He can do all of that when he wants to. But in the meantime, in verse 20, Paul is saying, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. In other words, trust God to make much of your life right there. And then he will do it. It may take time. If you're impatient, you're a type A. All right, I've been a Christian for five days and my whole family isn't saved yet. Well, forget it. I'm going to wipe the dust off of my feet and I'm going to go on to people who will listen, you know, when we cross the alley or whatever. We didn't get saved in five minutes or five days in terms of the light going on for so many of us. So sometimes it takes time. And as we just remain in the same calling in which he's called us, God will make much of that as we desire to do it for His glory. Now concerning question number two in verses 21 through 24, do I need uh, to quit my job and my vocation simply because it isn't overtly Christian? And so every Christian is saved while occupying some kind of a station in life. We're talking about, you know, teenage and uh, above. In the ancient world, Uh, there were many, many slaves in the ancient world. The number of slaves in the Roman Empire numbered in the multiplied millions. Slavery was legal. Human beings were bought and they were sold. And the experts tell us, or those that study these kind of things, that in the city of Corinth, fully two-thirds of the population were slaves. So when they ask questions about can I glorify God from the condition of being a slave? Or do I have to become free in order for my life to be used for God's glory? There's a whole group of people, gigantic group of people, in the, in the, the church at Corinth, where that was the question that was fully on their minds. Now we think about slaves. In the ancient world, important not to think of them strictly as kind of blue-collar, so to speak. Many slaves were the best educated, even within the, the families of the people that owned them. They'd been sent to medical school to be the family doctor. They were the accountants. They were the bookkeepers. They were the teachers for the family, the larger family so these were very, very skilled people, very, very capable people. But they were still slaves in the Roman Empire. And then you had many, many men and women in Corinth who were coming to trust in Jesus for salvation while they were free, like each of us in this room here today. And Paul explains to both of them that there's no special reason why a Christian has to change his occupation or his position in life subsequent to being saved. And he specifically addressed the person who became a Christian while a slave, and he tells them, don't be anxious over that, over having that position in life thinking, oh, how can how can I glorify God when I'm just a slave here in the Roman Empire? Paul said, don't be anxious or obsessed about uh, all of that and getting out of that station in life. He said, but rather focus on being the very best Christian that you can be in the place that you are saved in for God's glory. And it's just like the Jew and just like the Gentile. He's making the same point. The slave could reach people with the gospel that a free person never could. And in fact, in Corinth, a slave, the, the slave had a mission field that was totally, fully twice the size of a free man. So the slave could show, you could have a, a freed master who could speak to his slaves and share the gospel with them and represent it uh, to them, but there 'd always be this gap. He is a free man or woman, and I am a slave, but another slave could work side by side. another slave could uh, speak to them from the same context and and uh, talk about you know how to do this and how to uh, to handle this kind of situation could show. Uh, their fellow slaves, fellow co-workers in our application, what the Christian life looks like for a slave and the blessings of the Christian life, whether a person's a slave or not a slave, in a way, again, that a free man could never do. And the God, of course, who did the greater miracle in saving us, he could also do the f- Smaller miracle than of setting a slave free and moving us onto another job, if he wants to, for that purpose. But in the meantime, Paul says we're not to make that the focus of our life, to the neglect of being an influence right where it is that we are in life. Now, if you have the opportunity, you're a slave, and you have the opportunity to be freed, absolutely take advantage uh, of that. Uh, By all means, there's nothing wrong with advancing in life as a Christian or bettering myself in life as a Christian as the opportunity arises. But what if we are in that kind of a situation, a slave, and that's fixed for us? That can never change, will never change in our lifetime. There's no way out. Then Paul says, then we're not to spend all of our time between now and heaven trying to escape those circumstances, but instead we're to give ourselves to glorifying God in the situation that we're in. For us, the application might be a job or it might be a marriage. It might be a ministry position. It might be a medical condition. It might be the nation or the part of the world that you're in. There's a whole world of people today wake up every day living in a country that is an absolute nightmare to live in. And they have no hope of escaping that. And so where do they find significance for their life, meaning for their life? They want to make a difference for Christ as much as you and I want to make a difference for Christ, maybe more, in the environment that they're in. But they're a slave in that nation. You can't get a passport out. You can't get a visa out. You can't move. That's a condition of a lot of people in the world today. And the fact of the matter is, Paul says, that the slave is the Lord's freedman. Every Christian's been freed from the bondage of sin. Jesus said, He whom the sentence sets free is free indeed. Every single Christian has been set free, and whether certainly speaking of a slave, but the slaves were set free from a slave's mentality. He's no longer supremely a slave. I'm a servant of the Most High God. I'm a son or a daughter of the God who created me and created the heavens and the earth. I serve God. or Yes, I'm his slave. I'm here. This is my context. This is my ministry. But way up overarching over all of that, what gives meaning and nobility and dignity to my life and how I spend it every day is I do all of it not to serve him, but to serve him who is above all of it. And to know Christ was to be freed not only from the bondage of sin, but to be freed from the slave's mentality. And then he says also that the free man is Christ's slaves. Every single free Christian is to realize that we are a slave of the Lord himself. To be obedient to his every command and plan for our lives. And if God takes and he puts somebody and he says, I want you in the context of slavery in Corinth to glorify me in that place because all of this is preparation for heaven and nothing matters but hearing that well done one day. That's where I want you. And then God speaks to the freed person and says, You, I want you to do this. I don't want to do this. You're my slave. Bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. The trusting of whether we are a slave or whether we are free, of having the peace and the knowledge that, God, you have sovereignly and providentially placed me in this situation, I know that I am in your will and I am in this marriage, I am in this family, I am in this job, I am in this city, I am in this neighborhood, I am in this apartment complex because this is where you have me to live for you. And God chooses that just as fully for the freed person. As he does for the slave. And so it equals everything out. As he said, we've all been bought at a price, forgiven based upon the death of Jesus at Calvary. Our lives don't belong to us anymore. And everyone, whether freed or whether free or whether slave, just to spend their life, our lives, fully focused on. Glorifying God in the context, in the place where we have been saved, whether we're a slave or whether we are free. Now, in other words, it isn't necessary to leave the situation in life that we were in when we were saved in order to experience and in order to enjoy every blessing in the Christian life, in order or in order to make. A difference for the kingdom of God. The slave experiences and has every bit as much in Christ Jesus as the free person does. So there isn't this need to become something else or to move someplace else or to be something else in order to fully experience the Christian life. You know, there are a lot of people who live their entire lives in their future rather than in their present. They hardly ever experience or hardly ever notice or hardly ever enjoy their today because their whole focus is upon their future. Their entire life is lived in their future. Some of the place that they would rather be or that they dream of one day being And they never take one moment to enjoy the blessing of the situation that they're in currently. They live 100% in the future related to those things. Or related to some job they dream about other than the one that they already have or they think about all of the important relationships that they're neglecting in their lives today but they tell themselves that they will invest in those relationships someday when finally all of their dreams and their plans come true and they hardly spend any time in the present it's all goals it's all plans it's all the future it's all some day and then one day they come to the end of their life, and oftentimes they realize that they've missed all of life. Hardly spent five days in the present tense. Spent all of life living for some future, some dream, some, something that never ever came to pass. By personality, some of us can be like that as Christians where we're going to start to serve the Lord and we're going to fulfill His calling upon our lives, we're going to impact the world for God. Someday when I get my degree, and I never witnessed to a single person in the university I attend always going to make a difference somewhere out there in the future. It's a funny thing how Often it occurs. I don't say that it happens often, but it's amazing that it happens as often it does occur. Where somebody believes that they're called by God to be a missionary to some other part of the world. And they've never led a single person to Christ in Modesto. Never shared the gospel with a single person in their family. But when they get to Ecuador... Or they get to Russia. Or they get to Germany. All that'll change in an instant. And it's a self-delusion. Someday. Someday I'll start doing all of this. Someday when we get the ultimate job or promotion we feel that we need to achieve first. Then, then we'll give God Then we'll serve them. Then we'll focus on those things. Someday when our lives finally get settled into such and such a house or such and such a city or a neighborhood or someday when the kids are older and and grown or someday when we feel financially secure or someday when we think we have enough training and. Enough knowledge and experience, and on and on and on it goes. And the problem is, is that every time we achieve one of those things, this kind of person that then establishes another goal that they need to achieve before they're going to make a difference for Christ in their life right where He's put them. On and on it goes. I've got to become a Jew first. I've got to become a Gentile first. I've got to cease to be a slave first. And in this passage, the Holy Spirit comes to us. And in a wonderful way, he puts his arm around us. And he declares, bloom where you are planted today. And you've heard that saying, haven't you? Bloom where you're planted. The origin of it is ascribed to a religious man influenced by Christianity many, many centuries ago. And I have no doubt, I certainly don't consider it unlikely, that he came to declare that saying under the influence of the very verses that we're looking at this morning. In 1 Corinthians Chapter 7. God would speak to us I know I got a Jew when I saved you. <laughs> I know I got a Gentile when I saved you. I know I got a slave when I saved you. I know I got a free man when I saved you. He knows who we are. He knows what we are. He knows what he got when he got us a project. But he also knows that we will be fruitful right where we are if we will determine to glorify Him in our current circumstance, not waiting until we are in a future circumstance we consider to be more favorable. Whether we are married or unmarried or circumcised or uncircumcised or young or old or rich or poor, or educated, or uneducated, or famous, or anonymous. You think about how much of the body of Christ puts off being effective for Christ in the current, the present tense of their life, with the idea that I will one day do that when such and such changes And then we realize that fully, one, fully, I would say at least half of the potential effectiveness for Christ in this city or in any city is lost immediately on the basis of that. None of these other things mean anything. A person can be fruitful in any of these states whether free or a slave or married or unmarried and there are parallels between those things rich or poor old or young or all of these things we can be fruitful in any of those states all that's required is to obey God's commandments in whatever state I'm in and so We're not to spend all of our time and effort and focus trying to escape our current condition to the neglect of how God wants to use us in our situation that we're in until precious days and weeks and months and years pass by without us making an impact for God where we are. And so God tells us, Paul speaks to us here, and says, start right now. Start right now where we are now, and focus on serving God there. Or else, life will become this long-lost dream that never came true in terms of making a difference for God. It will always have been out there on the basis of some change in my life, and it will never, ever happen. And if he wants to change, make a change in our lives, then he'll make us aware of that, his time and his way. And so bloom where you're planted. That's the whole point here. Joseph did in the Old Testament from slavery to imprisonment, to then becoming the second most powerful man in the whole world at that time in Egypt, and ultimately becoming the savior of his family and the bloodline of the Messiah, Jesus as well. There's a lot of things you could say about Joseph, but he served God in every single place that God providentially had him when at times it looked like God wasn't paying attention at all. And that's why in that passage concerning Joseph, it says, and the Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord was with Joseph. How much he saw of it, we don't know. But the Lord was with him. You want to think about great personalities in the Bible, people in the Bible who chose to bloom where they were planted and then make a great difference. Joseph is one of those men. You can hardly think about this without thinking about the prophet Daniel. As a young man, he'd be a part of our Team 56, our junior high ministry, and all the kids that are in that group. Am I don't mind calling them kids. But no, they haven't punched me in the nose yet, so maybe I'll change my mind. He's taken from Israel. You have to go to Israel. And I suppose you would have to be a Jew as well to know what it would mean for a godly young man because of the sins of other people to be taken captive by the Babylonians out of Israel the land of Israel and to know I will never see it with my eyes ever again I'll never hold that dirt in my hand I'll never see the Sea of Galilee or Mount Carmel or the Jordan Valley. And did he go to Babylon and mope or dream or, God, I'll serve you as soon as you get me out of this stinking land of idolatry called Babylon? No, he didn't. He bloomed where he was planted has become one of the most beloved figures in all of the Bible. And then finally I think of Jesus Himself. Come from the glory of heaven into the brokenness and the fallenness of this world. He did it. Isaiah wrote concerning Him, for he shall grow up before him he that is jesus the messiah shall grow up before him that is the father as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground now that's those are interesting choice of words in the light of our theme here today of blooming where we're planted And in the garden of Gethsemane on the night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed to the Father. He said, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. What did he do? He bloomed where he was planted and changed all of history and changed an uncountable number of lives for all of eternity. And Paul says we've been bought at a price and we've been granted the privilege of living the same life for the glory of God. Not someday, but right now. In the marriage, in the job, in the neighborhood, in the workplace, in the church, and the family that I'm in right now, and as God did with Joseph and Daniel and Jesus, he will also do with us. He will be faithful to make much of it for his glory. All these things that we think are so important in order to make a difference for God in this world, Paul says they're irrelevant. Here's what makes a difference for God in the world. Verse 19. Keeping the commandments of God and the places we will be in today is all that matters. Bloom where you're planted is the theme of the passage. And it's a good word. And it's a needed word. And I am glad to have received it myself this morning. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank You, Father, for Your Word. Thank You for what it does inside of us, how it moves things around, it rearranges, it washes certain things away, it strengthens other things, it introduces still other things into our life. And we thank You for this truth here today. Lord, how many of us put off such gigantic blocks of our life into someday spending day after day until they become weeks and months and years and decades trying to change our circumstances when you have us right in the place to be the most effective for your kingdom And we pray that you would wash all of that thinking away from our minds, Lord. That perspective that comes from who knows where, you know. And replace it now, Lord, with an excitement about where you have planted us. And where our growth and our relationship with you will make a profound difference whether we see it or we don't see it. And this morning, Lord, under the encouragement and the beautiful weight of your word, we choose to do just that in all of the places of influence that you have us in life. And we do so, Lord, by your grace, asking you to fill us with your Holy Spirit, to be able to do that for your glory. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.